0: All of that is intended to demonstrate what the Old Testament promises, which is that one day Yahweh, who is king over all, will demonstrate specifically his kingship over enemy territory, namely Sheol, the place of the dead.
1: All I could see was this light coming in the Holy Spirit went, It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done born again welcome to the Weird christian podcast i am your host samuel delgado and this is episode 77 i interview matthew emerson about jesus descent into hell which i think is often overlooked when it comes to jesus's ministry so we talk about what he does in between his death and resurrection and its significance for us today so with no further ado let's get weird welcome to the show um, first start out by saying your book was just such a breath of fresh air. Um, I wanted to start out the episode by saying it, it's a crying shame to me uh, for the listener we're talking about the descent. We always talk about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and we just skip right over the descent. Um and I had never seen anything written about this before. To my knowledge, this is, uh, you know, there may be other volumes out there. Uh, but when I saw this and read it, um, boy, it, it just, uh, it was incredible. And the emphasis you put on the descent um, it was really, really enlightened to me. I appreciate it. And so I'm excited to share this with the listener today. Uh, so welcome to the show. Um,
0: well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, you never know how a book's going to be received and, and, uh, what's going to happen, but I'm glad to hear that it's helped you. Um, it certainly helped me, honestly. I mean, I went into it, not really knowing what I thought, uh, mm-hmm. but it helped me in my understanding of scripture and theology and my appreciation for what Christ has done for us. So, um, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's helped at least one other person too. Says. Uh, yeah.
1: well, for sure. I mean, I, I'm going to put like a, a highlight on the descent cause I, I didn't realize just, um, You know, what you draw, one thing you draw in the book is just how other theologians um, throughout church history viewed the descent. And uh, it's just something I feel like is looked over. And so, um, why don't you start just by telling us, uh, you know, what the descent is uh, for those that don't know what that means and where do we see it in Scripture?
0: Yeah. So, Christ's descent to the dead uh, refers to specifically his work. Uh, in between his death and resurrection. So what was happening to Jesus between good Friday, uh, and Easter Sunday. And, you know, a lot of folks, uh, at least when I was growing up, the, the common kind of pattern was good Friday service on Friday evening, Easter service on Sunday morning. And in between that was the Easter egg hunt on Saturday. So yeah. uh, I don't think Jesus was hunting Easter eggs, but, um, uh, you know, so the question is, well, are we supposed to be celebrating something? Is there something we need to remember about uh, what Christ is is doing on Saturday? And so the, the book is an argument that historically, and especially biblically and theologically, Christ's descent to the dead refers to the fact that Christ, according to his human nature, that is, as a human being, a real human, just like any other human who experiences death, um, his soul departs to the place of the dead, and his body is buried. Because he's not just fully human, but also fully God, that entails a victory over death. So mm-hmm. the doctrine of Christ's descent to the dead, at the most basic level, recognizes that Jesus experiences death like we all do, and that because he's also God, he uh, is accomplishing victory over death and experiencing death as we all do, and especially uh, at his resurrection.
1: Mm. I, I love that, and we talk about that victory, but then we don't we don't take that to its uh, you know furthest application uh and and perhaps it it makes us uncomfortable i know many who may be listening that are familiar with the apostles creed recite it there that he descended into hell and perhaps that makes people feel uncomfortable so it it maybe is become a a taboo i I don't know maybe you can speak to that but you know um and i think part of that is because there's maybe a misconception um that uh peter writes about um you know preaching so sometimes i know people are felt uncomfortable perhaps those that are in the abode of the dead or the the netherworld underworld are getting a second chance so really what is the purpose behind this descent i mean obviously he like you said he's human so the soul's out to go somewhere but um you know what what's happening uh there
0: yeah i mean i think that there in general a few major objections to the doctrine one of them is as you said that uh, there's this idea that Christ somehow goes to uh, the place of the dead and preaches the gospel essentially in an evangelistic kind of way hmm. where people have a second chance to repent and believe. That's that's one of the major objections. Another major objection is that um, it, they they think that they're confessing in he descended to hell. They think they're confessing that Christ was tormented in hell uh, and and then you know there's also an objection um, related to the fact that people don't really believe in an intermediate state these days so the mm-hmm. idea of a soul persisting after death is is pretty uh looked down upon by for instance uh, philosophers and anthropology um so you know and those ideas trickle down into congregations etc um you know what I would say is I also would object to a doctrine. <laughs> That says that Christ was tormented in hell or that he um, or that he is preaching a second chance for salvation or that he you know, doesn't even have a human soul. I would object to all those things, too. The, the, the doctrine of Christ's descent to the dead or his descent into hell, if you want to call it that, um, is not affirming any of those three things. And uh, the, the purpose of Christ's descent is not to provide a second chance for salvation for those who already died. Um, it's not for Christ to be uh tormented in hell, and it does happen because he does have a human soul. So uh the, the purpose is really proclamation of the victory he's already accomplished on the cross and the impending victory that will be sealed by his resurrection from the dead. Um so it's a kind of in-between phase of Christ's work, it's in between his death and resurrection, um, the the necessary act. To accomplish salvation has already happened mm-hmm. in the crucifixion, but the subsequent verification and validation of that act has not happened yet, the resurrection. And in the resurrection, that final victory over death really happens. So um, he's not really doing anything new. Mm-hmm. He is proclaiming first to the dead uh, what he has accomplished already. And what's about to happen the resurrection and then of course when he rises from the dead he proclaims that to the living and then as an an ascension um he declares it both by virtue of the ascension into heaven and also um in virtue of his continuing word to the church in the new testament he he declares it uh in heaven so you know it's it's kind of a first step of the announcement of the accomplishment of the good news it's not doing anything new. It's, he's not being tormented, but he is declaring that's, that's what Peter means when he says preach, he means declare. Uh, so I think, I think just kind of clearing the ground of those misconceptions helps a lot, uh, when we talk about the descent because they are misconceptions and I would be troubled as well if that's what it meant, but that's not, that's not what the doctrine is.
1: For sure. Yeah. And I, um, Sort of skipped ahead. You mentioned is, is it first or second Peter? I, I know I know it's one of those two. There, there's a verse in there. Yeah. Is there can you clarify what where, where that is? And is there anywhere else in, in scripture where we see uh, the descent?
0: Yeah. So First Peter 3, uh, 18 through 22, Peter uh talks about um you know, he says uh that he died and um rose and then by the by the spirit he preached um and so you know there's some alternative explanations of that uh that phrase but the most compelling one i think in in greek is that it's referring to the time between his death and resurrection that he declared to the spirits who were rebellious in the days of noah Mm. Um, and you know we can get into this a bit later but you know, in declaring his victory to the dead, he's declaring it to everyone in the place of the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the Bible, the place of the dead includes the righteous and the unrighteous and then those in Tartarus or the prison for evil angels. So he's declaring it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, it's good. It's good news for the righteous. It's bad news for everybody else, because uh, that means they were wrong to rebel, which they already know. Uh, yeah. since, well, this is the sign the reality really um mm-hmm. that they were they they rebelled against the true king who's come to declare victory in enemy territory so to speak uh, over death um other other texts you know Matthew uh, chapter 12 verses 38 through 42 Jesus talks about the sign of noah or sorry the sign of jonah um mm-hmm. and if you read um uh, Jesus's reference to Jonah, he's very clearly equating his time in the grave
1: Yeah.
0: Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. And if you go back to Jonah 2, uh, Jonah's time in the belly of the fish is time in Sheol, or the place of the dead. Now, it's not literal. He's literally in a fish, but he's metaphorically saying it's like being in the place of the dead. Yeah, and So, Jesus is referring to himself as actually going to the place of the dead, whereas Jonah was merely a sign of that. Jesus does it in reality. Um, Acts chapter two, where Jesus or where Peter quotes um, Psalm 16 in reference to uh, you will not you know, abandon me to Hades. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Um, this reference to the fact that the Messiah is in Hades and is, is, has died. Um, and then you've got Peter, uh, Romans ten: uh, If we say that He ascended into heaven, do we not also say that He de- descended into the abyss? A similar kind of statement in Ephesians uh, four verse nine: Again, as- ascent into heaven, descent. Uh, Ephesians uses the language of lower regions of the earth, but uh, if you look at the kind of the the worldview of Ephesians. Um, it's very clear, and also from some other parallels in the Old Testament, as well as ancient uh, Greco-Roman literature, it's very clear that lower regions of the earth ought to be understood as the place of the dead. So there's, there's a few different places uh, in the New Testament where Jesus or the apostles make reference to Jesus being in the place of the dead between his death and resurrection. Um, Revelation one eighteen is another one where Jesus says he now possesses the keys of death and Hades, and the idea mm-hmm. in Revelation one eighteen is that he has taken them from the realm that they belong mm-hmm. to, um, even the personified powers that they belong to, if you want to put it that way. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a number of different texts that refer to uh, Jesus being in the place of the dead mm-hmm. and and gaining victory over the place of the dead. And then, you know, I think the other thing I would say about the biblical text is that all of that is intended to demonstrate what the Old Testament promises, which is that one day Yahweh, who is king over all, will demonstrate specifically his kingship over enemy territory, namely Sheol, the place of the dead. Mm-hmm. Death shouldn't be here. The 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 rulers of the realm of the dead, namely uh, death personified, which isn't a person, but uh, a, a real being is Satan and Satan is often identified as the ruler of this realm. Um, they sh- th- th- it shouldn't exist uh, and and yet G- Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, uh, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, demonstrates his kingship in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises that one day the God of Israel will uh, defeat this last enemy of Israel. Namely the king the kingdom of death. So, you know, all of those references to Jesus being in the place of the dead are intended to help readers understand, if they don't already, from just by virtue of the resurrection, that Jesus has done what the Old Testament promises God will do. Hmm. So that that's kind of a, a brief overview of, of where this is in the in the Bible. Yeah.
1: No, that's incredible. and That's one thing that kind of shocked me when I read your book. I didn't realize I knew that reference to First Peter, but uh, you go through so many different scriptures, and I realized, wow, um, the New Testament writers are putting a high emphasis on this, um, and which kind of grieved me a little bit. Cause I'm like, man, why don't I put more emphasis in, in my thinking of what Christ did? Um, you know, not only on the cross, not only the burial, but but you know, I'm sort of missing this this connection here um and he sort of answered my you know my my question i was going to um with this proclamation that he makes so you know it's right to think that satan was in charge of this realm prior and what we see in revelation with him getting the keys is now he is taking charge of that area um so you know what are we to think of this space now um now that christ has the keys um seemingly satan no longer has um, dominion over that realm, uh, you know, what does that look like now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, of course we need to be careful to say that um, God has always been in charge, right? Yeah. Um, nevertheless, until Christ's resurrection from the dead, there is a sense in which death is a prison that is inescapable for anyone. Mm. And only now, by virtue of Christ's resurrection and His defeat of death, is it um, does it become a prison from which we're liberated? Uh, and only those who trust in Christ are liberated, right? So again, this is not universalism. It's not a second call. It, it's union with Christ is the means by which uh, we're liberated from the prison of death, um, finally and, and fully. So it you know justification by faith alone intersects with this doctrine very clearly. We want to affirm those things, all those truths. Um, you know I, I think that uh, what is most important to to be able to say is that you know Christ's kingship is is the display and the enactment of God's Rule over this enemy territory, yeah. I, Yahweh is King everywhere. Um, what what Jesus does is demonstrate and enact that kingship in in hell, uh, in in the place of the dead, in His descent to the dead. And and you know, this may be getting ahead, but that's good news that that we can declare that Jesus is King even over this place that seems like such a, a monstrous enemy to us. Uh, Jesus is King, even over this country, mm-hmm. even over this ruler, uh, which we may, we may want to get into later, but um, it, it is, a it, it is important in the sense that it's a declaration of, of God's rule in Christ, even over this enemy stronghold. Um, it, you know, I, I sympathize with what you said about you know kind of feeling bad that I've sort of missed this for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, on the one hand, I I think there are beautiful aspects of this doctrine that we're missing when we neglect it. On the other hand, it is important to retain the fact that it's a kind of in between doctrine, right? It's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not the most important doctrine. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it it is a, it is an entryway. Into the doctrine of the resurrection, and it's also sort of the the um, I, I try not to use silly intellectual words a lot, but it's kind of like the denouement of the of the crucifixion. Like we're, we're the the climactic event has happened. Jesus has died on the cross. There's still stuff to do, but like the big thing has happened. You know, mm-hmm. so um, it's important to retain the mystery and the hiddenness of the yeah. descent, even as we also want to bring to light how and why it's important and, and where it is in Scripture.
1: Yeah, awesome. Okay, so my next question is, with that dissent and with that proclamation, you know, it, it's almost like you said, it's good news for the righteous, and then it's mm-hmm. almost like a flex um, for the unrighteous, where it's like, ha! Uh, yeah. um, it, are we right to think that did he empty? I think you answered this book. Did he empty out um, the righteous? You know that that section of uh, Sheol or the netherworld?
0: Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. And I, I realized just now that I didn't answer fully answer the rest of your previous question. Um, so the answer is no. He doesn't empty out the place of the dead. Um, and, and you know what the New Testament teaches. Uh, in especially like Ephesians four is that um, the nature of the place of the dead for the righteous changes. I mean, and the best way to think about this is to say that the new Testament uses language referring to space Hmm. to teach spiritual realities. Hmm. So um, the best way I can put this is that the place of the dead isn't actually a physical space because our souls aren't Material. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're not. Well, I should say they're not corporeal. Um, we're not. Uh, our souls are not floating around in space, right? So, mm-hmm. when the when the New Testament or the Old Testament talks about um, this kind of spatial language of descending, ascending, and where it is, and it's under the earth or it's in the west, those are ways to communicate truth using um, using language that relies on the physical world around us to communicate it. So, you know, the, the place of the dead isn't a somewhere, I guess is what I'm getting that we can sail to on a boat or fly to on a plane or dig to with a, a backhoe, right. Um, it, it it exists in the spiritual realm of creation, which is real, Mm -hmm. but it's not locatable.
1: Yeah.
0: So, you know, when we when we talk about is it emptied out, um, or what happened? You know, are, are the place is the place of the dead now separated between righteous and unrighteous? Well, we have to be careful in how we we respond to that, given the the, the non spatial nature of the place of the dead using spatial language. So, all that to say, in the Old Testament, Sheol is kind of one collecting spot for all the dead. Yeah. Every, every dead person there in their human soul descends, so to speak, to the place of the dead. Um, now, they're, they are still uh, separated in the sense of, you know, in the book I use language of compartments. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still separated in the sense that the righteous experience the place of the dead not as torment, but as waiting. Mm-hmm. The unrighteous experience it as... Uh, torment waiting to come to full fruition in the general resurrection of the dead, right? The the righteous that are waiting for the general resurrection to new life, the unrighteous are waiting for general resurrection to the second death. Yeah. uh, Eternal torment. Yeah. And so when the New Testament speaks about the descent and what happens in that, it uses spatial language to say that the nature of the place of the dead for the righteous changes. Mm changes from a place of waiting for the Messiah to come to now the Messiah has come and is dwelling in their midst bodily in the Mm. Ascension. Mm. And this is why Ephesians 4 can talk about, uh, he led forth a host of captives. Mm. He leads those previously imprisoned in death, namely the righteous dead into his bodily presence in the Ascension. They don't, I mean, again, they're not in a location. They don't change location, so to speak. But there is a change in their reality from waiting for the Messiah to come to now he's here in the flesh with us, ascended, ruling and reigning over all things. Mm. So there there is a change. Um, The the unrighteous dead, uh, the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about that reality in relation to the ascension of Christ um, but but presumably the unrighteous dead are still aware that Christ has come, died, descended, risen, and ascended, and they're awaiting um, the lake of fire essentially. Um, so are they still together? Not in the sense of waiting for the Messiah. Yeah, right? because the righteous dead, their hope has been fulfilled. The unrighteous dead, their their judgment is sealed. Yeah, in the sense of they're still all human souls separated from their bodies. Yeah, uh, but the reality of that has changed because of the resurrection and ascension.
1: Mm. Yeah, and you get that sense when you hear Paul talk about being present with the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to be to be to dies to be in the presence of the Lord, uh, which which has a different flavor than what you get in the Old Testament. Right. Um, let me ask you about Matthew's account of those that were resurrected and were walking around in Jerusalem after the crucifixion, because you yeah. could draw a line there and say, "Oh, okay, well those people, um, they they were resurrected." And so, I guess I'm continuing on that line of thinking of it being emptied out. So, what's going on with these people that are that are resurrected? Um, did they ascend as well, uh, with Christ when he did, uh, what's going on with that? Is there a tie in here?
0: Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a really tough passage. Um, and I haven't really looked into it a whole lot. So I, anything I say is going needs to be highly qualified as I haven't studied this passage in detail. Um, one option would be, these are people who were dead and now, um, are raised, are really resuscitated, um, by virtue of Jesus's accomplished victory on the cross. Um, I, I, I I hesitate on that because you know. Well, I'll just leave it at that. That's one option. Um, another option would be this is Matthew. Um, referring to some future event that he sticks in the middle of the narrative. Uh, Another option is uh, kind of a combination of those two things that this is a resuscitation of the righteous dead based on the work of Christ, but Matthew places it where he does because the end of the gospel is uh, the Great Commission rather than this event, which happened essentially at the resurrection. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't have a really specific position on it. I, I do think that what Matthew is gesturing towards is the general resurrection of the dead that is grounded in Christ's resurrection from the dead. So whatever else you want to say about timing and what happens to them afterward and whoever it is, it is at the very least... Matthew saying the promise of the general resurrection of the dead is accomplished Mm -hmm. uh, because it is grounded in the resurrection of Christ uh, that is guaranteed based on his finished work on the cross. Um, Yeah, I, I think that's probably as much as I want to say or should say on that passage because honestly i just haven't done a whole lot of work on it i do think it's connected to this i just haven't done enough on it to say for sure uh what i think about it
1: yeah sure yeah truth be told that's before the burial um but of course you know as soon as jesus dies there's you know the soul's gonna depart um you know he even says into thy hands i commend my spirit so um you know it's it's one of those things that you it's just there. The other gospels don't talk about it, and there's hardly any other reference to it. You know, I think the, other, the only explanation I, I've heard is uh, Jesus referred to as first fruits, uh, and so I mm-hmm. only explanation I've heard is like they're part of that. Um, right. So anyway, uh, I just figured I would throw that in there.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, you know, you could you could say that um, like Lazarus, you know, that, that, that essentially that story is the equivalent to the Lazarus story in John.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That these are people who were resuscitated right so so you know if you if you really if you really insist that first fruits means first ever res- truly resurrected person um but lazarus and these people are raised prior to christ's own resurrection
1: mm-hmm.
0: then you know you have to kind of claim some kind of resuscitation where they die again later on and then mm-hmm. the Judgment Day, uh, are resurrected. Or, you know, they don't die, but they're caught up into heaven or something like that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. All of which would be, you know, extra biblical, we don't know, and that sort of right. thing. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, the we need to keep it where the Bible keeps it, which mm-hmm. is uh, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, the ground of all other resurrections. Yeah. And so however we explain Lazarus or these folks in Matthew 27, uh, we need to make sure that we're grounding that event, those events, in the the foundational event of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting because it does say that they appeared, they walked around and drew something and to appeared to, to, to people. Um, but then we're left to imagine whether they just kept on living um, or if they just appeared for a time, it's it's uh, it's one of those things. Anyway, so uh, I like your response to that. Um, in the book, you wrote about uh, a couple things that uh, really blew my mind. One was the implications that the descent has on the Sabbath. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when we think about the Sabbath, uh, it tend that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is just my own context in Southern Baptist life, but at least in my context, the conversation tends to devolve into whether or not we have to be strict Sabbatarians with respect to, you know, resting. And I I just think, you know, there's a lot more going on theologically with Sabbath than just what can we do and can't we do. Uh, And I I think one of those things that is uh, connected to the Sabbath is Christ's descent. Um, the church in uh, its, its prayers has connected Christ's descent to the rest that he receives uh, upon the completion of his work, mm-hmm. much like God rests at the end of uh, Genesis one. Mm-hmm. And as we rest, uh, we remember God's rest, both in the works of creation and redemption. And it, you know, uh john makes it this really very very clear point um that jesus rises on the eighth day uh so he he takes you know he says in john 20 it was on the first day of the week okay well the first day of the week is also an eighth day
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, you know which would mean And it's obvious that, of course, Saturday would be the Sabbath. But, um, you know, it just makes it even more obvious that Jesus' descent, excuse me, occurs on the Sabbath day.
1: Hmm.
0: And, you know, you even have that with uh, Joseph of Arimathea making sure he buries the body prior to the beginning of the the Sabbath, etc. Jesus finishes his work on the sixth day rests on the seventh and rises on the eighth mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is kind of the idea. So I, I just think there's uh, a lot of, there's a lot of symmetry to that. It's equating the work of creation with the work of redemption in terms of God resting after he's finished. I mean, Jesus declares it is finished on the cross in John, then rests. I mean, so, you know, there's just all, all these kinds of, of neat uh, parallels there to remind us that God's work is ordered, um, that it is uh, accomplished by him and not by us, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our rest is founded in Christ's rest, all these sorts of things. So I, I just think that's really, I mean, it's just kind of neat.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I love that, that section. Uh, another one that really perked me up. Was when you talked about the millennium, uh, what implications did the scent have on the millennium?
0: Yeah, so I kind of hedged my bets there uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that if if you are a pre-millennial, a historic pre-millennialist, where you're waiting for the millennium. Um, the the descent gives grounds, really. I mean, really, the the whole trivium of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday gives grounds for the uh, chaining of Satan during mm-hmm. the thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the authority, the me- the mechanism by which Christ does that is uh, these events, and specifically with the descent, that's Him going into the stronghold and binding the strong man right mm-hmm. um I think for an amillennialist position um it's sort of a much it, it's it's a tighter connection between uh the passion and the the beginning of the millennium in in terms of time right so mm-hmm. for a historic premillennialist all all these events including the descent ground this future event of the beginning beginning of the millennium, Mm -hmm. namely the the chaining of Satan. For an all-millennialist, it it, it is these events that that begins the millennium. It is the descent, uh, specifically when Christ enters the strong man's house and binds the strong man, Mm. Uh, namely, you know, this would be chaining Satan. Uh, And the early church doesn't make a connection specifically to, to the millennium, I don't think, in this, but they do very clearly... View the descent as that binding of the strong man. So one one way or the other, right? If you're a premillennialist or an all millennialist, um, I suppose a postmillennialist as well. Uh, the 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 beginning of that millennial period uh, is connected and in intricately to Christ's descent to the dead because he does enter into uh, the strong man's house, and whether it's binding him right then or providing the grounds for binding later sure yeah that's it yeah
1: yeah so you're saying it could be a type you know if, if you're pre this is a, a type foreshadowing something that's going right. to happen on this is the binding of happened at that time yeah. um yeah that's really interesting uh goodness you said something i had a, a question about that that popped up and i just completely left my brain um but it'll, it'll probably come back to me uh but yeah yeah it, <laughs> Like you said, you, you hedge your bets, you kind of allow for for both interpretations there. So, which is like anything with eschatology, like, you know, you, you're going to go with whatever one kind of fits your paradigm. But uh, I, I did find that very, very interesting. Um, I guess, yeah, my question came back to me and I said it would. Um, so you mentioned the binding, uh, the strong man. Uh, we see Jesus make statements of uh, seeing Satan fall like lightning. Um, and then in Revelation uh, we see something similar um, w- with Satan uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a third of the angels being cast out. Is there a connection there with the descent in, in, in this uh, in this time frame?
0: Yeah, I mean I th- I think those are uh, it's a similar answer in that whether it's you know the archangel Michael throwing Satan out of heaven in Revelation twelve or whether it's Satan falling like lightning. Uh, that Jesus says in the Gospels, or it's binding the strong man, you know, the crucifixion, descent, and resurrection
1: mm.
0: are the grounds for yeah. those events whenever yeah. they happen. Got it. So, again, if you're a, yeah, it depends on what kind of eschatology you have, but either it's the grounds for or the actual event happening. Yeah. However you want to interpret Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool, cool, cool. Uh, something that was really interesting. Um, and uh, hopefully you're you're tracking with uh, what I'm talking about when I say this. You mentioned something about uh, Christ's burial and and the significance of that um, and according to, I guess, the the custom of that time. Uh, Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of very fascinating things happening with the burial of Jesus. So, you know, with the descent, much of the focus is on what's happening with his human soul, which is appropriate, uh, but the the burial itself of his body is also significant uh, theologically. So in the gospel of John, uh, when John records Jesus's burial, he talks about Joseph of Arimathea taking him down from the cross, but then he, he mentions the, all the spices that are laid on Jesus and, and kind of the mechanism of that burial. And it's very obvious from the way that John describes Jesus' body that he is comparing him first of all to a king uh, so in the Old Testament in ancient uh, cultures at the time including Second Temple Jewish and, and Greco-Roman cultures that would have been an obviously kingly burial it's even comparable to some kingly burials in the Old Testament mm. uh, but then as well as this kingly comparison so Jesus is dead but he's a king uh, is sort of the idea there the other the other thing is the the spices that they lay on his body are temple spices. Hmm. Um, so you're you're saying Jesus is a king, and his body is a temple, hmm. essentially is is the way that, that John is portraying this. Wow, uh, take, you know describing the dead body of Jesus as a kingly temple. Well, it, if that's true, which it is. Uh, it is true that Jesus is King, and also it's true that Jesus is the Temple. I mean, if you read the Gospel of John, you know at the end of at the end of the Gospel of John, in the crucifixion narrative, especially in John 18, there is just abundant uh, uh, scriptural evidence that Jesus on the cross is declaring and signifying His kingship as He's being crucified. So the idea that John would then describe his dead body in a kingly fashion isn't surprising, given he's given he's just described the crucifixion as the the uh, the declaration and even the bringing to light publicly of Jesus's kingship. Right? There's all these light dark uh, people, in the, people who see in the light versus those who are still in the dark. Right? The, the crucifixion is the public display of who Jesus is. You find similar things in the Gospel of Mark. And so the idea that Jesus' body would be described as kingly isn't surprising. Um, and then it's not surprising that Jesus' body is described in, in temple terms either, because at the very beginning of the gospel, right, the first thing that we, we, we see Jesus, or one of the first things we see Jesus doing after he calls the disciples, is telling the, the Jewish leaders of the time that he's going to
1: mm-hmm.
0: destroy the temple and raise yeah. it up in three days. And John adds the aside that they did not understand at the time that he was speaking of his own body.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? So, you know, the idea that Jesus' body would be compared to the temple isn't surprising. Here's this kingly temple imagery. Well, in the Old Testament, um, the... (laughs) There's there's so much going on here. In the Old Testament, um, one of the signs of the... Ownership of and restoration of the land is the installment enthronement of the king. So here is Jesus being enthroned as king in his death. Mm. But the other, uh, you know, the other piece of uh, the land claim in the Old Testament is the temple site. Uh, if you read, if you read the Old Testament narrative in light of where the temple ends up. Uh, and in the Old Testament, the temple is intricately connected to ownership of the land. When you have the temple, when you have the worshiping the place where you worship Yahweh, it means you are settled in the land. When the when the temple is destroyed and Yahweh's place is no longer there, that that's exile, right? So having the temple back in the land is a big sign of of land ownership, right? Well, if you read the narrative of the temple site, mm-hmm. uh, really of the land itself, the The conquest of the land begins with Abram when he enters into the land and builds a temple site, an altar. Uh, It continues with Jacob going in and building an altar. It continues um, in the conquest as Joshua leads the people through the land and they build altars to worship Yahweh. But the first place that they purchase in the Old Testament, the first place that Israel ever owns for itself, even before it's a nation, is the burial cave at Machpelah for Sarah that Abraham purchases from uh, the people of the land. Mm-hmm. And the last place that they have to acquire is the threshing floor uh, of uh, the, the Jebusite uh, at the end of David's census. Mm,
1: yeah,
0: And so the, the, the land narrative is a movement from burial site to temple site and here you have, at the end of the Gospel of John, burial and temple together. And so this, this king-temple-burial matrix wow. uh, is a declaration of Jesus' really possession of the land. Hmm. Uh, he is Israel embodied in himself, even in his dead body being put in a grave. He's the embodiment of uh, Israel's claim over the promised land. Hmm which centers on himself. And then of course he rises on the eighth day in a garden with a woman, supposing him to be the gardener, et cetera. I mean, the, 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 the resurrection scene, you've got two angels guarding the entrance to the tomb,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Which where have you heard that before? Oh wait, there's two angels guarding the entrance to the garden of Eden. Oh, look, there's two cherubim sitting on the Ark of the covenant. What's, What's, what's being signified by these two angels on the, the sides of the entry of the tomb? It's the presence of God. Mm.
1: This,
0: this, this grave is the site of the presence of the Lord.
1: Mm.
0: And then his you know, the linen cloths are laid in such a way that they're evocative of uh, uh, temple imagery, priestly imagery as well. Um, so, you know, there's all of this kind of land, temple, king... Imagery going on in the burial narrative, so Christ's descent is even connected to the Israel's claim over the Promised Land. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to say about all of this. Uh, it's it's a really neglected piece of Christ's work, but um, there's there's a lot of interesting things biblically and theologically going on, and pastorally, uh, most importantly, really to me.
1: No, absolutely. That that's incredible. You know, going back to adam and the promises are made to abraham and then that's just that's completely nuts um that's one thing that i i would have never uh figured out but um i thought that was so cool uh let me ask uh i think you you mentioned you, you qualify this event as the day of the lord in the book is that correct
0: well uh i i can't remember exactly where i talk about the day of the lord but i would just say that in the bible the day of the lord is inclusive of everything from the davidic king returns messiah suffering servant forgiveness of sins resurrection temples rebuilt lands reclaimed uh victory over enemies all of that is the day of the lord in the old Testament. and so this is part of um what happens on the day of the lord yeah gotcha.
1: all right um I, I'll throw this last question in here. <laughs> I don't remember if you talked about this book or not but it, uh, at some point it came to my brain I was going to ask about ghosts uh, and, and if they are the disembodied spirits of the dead um, you know that was yeah. one of the things that the disciples asked him you know they thought he was a ghost and he had to say, hey no look touch you know I'm, I'm, I'm not a ghost um, right. yeah so I want to ask if, if they um, if that tear right um, you know for like a, a disembodied spirit, if they have access to to the physical, um, is there a physical and a spiritual side?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I tend to think the answer to that is no. It's obvious that ancient people, including ancient J- Jewish people, believed that they could access the you know, physical realm, if you want to put it that way. It's unclear to me if that's actually reality. Sure. You know, so... Um, yes, clearly the disciples believe that there can be ghosts walking around and Jesus doesn't say you idiots. There's no such thing as ghosts. He says, you know, touch my hands. Um, I don't think that's really an affirmation necessarily by Jesus of the fact that there are ghosts. I think it's just like, you know, no, look at this. Um, I, I tend to think the answer is no, no. Dead, dead persons whose souls reside in the place of the dead do not have general access to the land of the living. Yeah. So no, I don't think there's ghosts.
1: I gotcha.
0: I I do think that you know there are lots of people who have experienced what if you want to call it the paranormal or whatever. Mm -hmm. My, My hunch is that most of that, maybe all of it, is probably a manifestation of. Uh, the presence of evil angels in certain ways that that are, um, you know, attempting to deceive us.
1: Sure.
0: I, I have no, you know, I don't know that I have a, a, a real good biblical theological argument for that other than to say the the Bible doesn't really say there's ghosts. They do say that it does say that evil angels exist and they're trying to deceive us. But other than that, I can't give you, you know, chapter and verse, but that's just kind of my hunch.
1: I got you. Yeah, I just figured I'd sprinkle that in there.
0: It It makes me feel better also to answer my kids that way, to just tell them (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, All right, well, I think we're up against time here, so I'll let you kind of tell people where to get the book or how to get in touch with you, and uh, you can close this out in prayer.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, the book's on Amazon. uh, He Descended to the Dead. Uh, I, I think that hopefully it's accessible to many. Um, there are, there is some, you know, fairly technical sections of the book, but, um, hopefully, you know, they're not inaccessible to most readers. Um, you know, I I will say I wrote this book, um, you know, out of, out of interest and, uh, wanting to know what the Bible says about it and all that, but ultimately it's intended to be pastoral because the descent is a, is a actually a very beautiful pastoral doctrine in that it tells us that despite the reality, the ongoing reality of death, Christ is king even over our last enemy. Hmm. Already, He's already defeated our, our last enemy, which is death. Christ has already gone into the valley of the shadow of death before us and lights the way in front of us by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Um, so all of us are going to face death. All of us face death every day um, t- today as, as we're recording this. I uh, lost a member of my family. Um, and so, you know, Don't. to be reminded that um, Jesus is king, even over this awful enemy, uh, is is a beautiful pastoral doctrine. And it also reminds us that Christ is with us, not just here on earth as we face impending death or the death of a, loved one, of a loved one but christ is with us even in death
1: True.
0: yeah we scary. experience death in the intermediate state
1: mm.
0: um and that's those aren't the final words for our existence that one day he will return and raise us with him to be like him so it's a it's a really important doctrine pastorally uh in my opinion and, and a beautiful one at that so I hope I hope that uh, if somebody's listening and and wants to read more about it, they can find it on Amazon. I hope it's helpful in that way. Um, let me pray for us. All right, Father, thank you for uh, thank you for the opportunity to think once again about what you've said in your Word and what you've done through your Son and by your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as we contemplate along the the grain of your word, what you've done for us in Christ, uh, not just on Good Friday, not just on Easter Sunday, but in Holy Saturday. I pray that it would be faithful to Scripture, that it would be um, true theologically, and that it would help us to grow more into the image of your Son. Pray that it would be comforting pastorally, and that you do all these things by your Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen
1: there you have it ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed this episode make sure to share it with somebody you know and with that being said we'll catch you on the next one